Okay. Hi, everybody. Can you guys hear me okay? Great. Uh, well, it is. I'm thankful for technology, thankful for Zoom. Also thankful for the technology of the timer on my iPhone that I'm turning on right now that I forgot to do. Okay. It's good to set a timer. We also talk to you forever. Um, yeah, I'm thankful that we can do this. Uh, obviously it's less than ideal. Um, but you know, God provides for us and in all kinds of ways. And uh, it's good that we can be together in this way. Uh, we'll keep you guys updated. If, you, if you're just joining us, you missed our announcements at the beginning. Uh, I hope to pull through this quickly. Uh, Becca and I both. But uh, we will keep everyone update, updated on our status, on our health. We don't want to, as a church, we don't want to put anybody at risk with COVID. We, we want to be as careful uh, as we can. Uh, it's part of our core value of being welcoming. And uh, I don't want to spread this. So we'll keep everybody in the loop. Look to our weekly emails that come out, usually on Friday, sometimes Saturday morning. Uh, but we hope, and we're praying that we can be back in person next week. We've been in this little stint in the Psalms. <clears throat> we, Lord willing, will have one more week in the Psalms. And then beginning next month in June, Lord willing, we will go go to the beginning of the Bible and look at uh, at least Genesis one through three. Probably we're going to shoot for Genesis one through eleven, but we'll see how how long it takes. There is so much packed in those first chapters of the Bible uh, that I, I don't want us to rush through it. We're going to take our time and try to really enjoy everything that God has for us there. Genesis 1 through 3, the story of creation and the fall, uh, is critical and so important uh, to understand, to wrap our minds, even our imaginations around, to understand uh, the message of the Christian faith. And it also answers some of our most basic and fundamental questions regarding what it means to be human, what it means to care for one another and live in community, what it means to care for the world. What does it mean to obey God? What does it mean to seek God's salvation? Very basic questions. So the reason I'm telling you this is uh, this would be, this Genesis uh, series would be a really great opportunity to invite a friend. If you have a friend who might be interested in the Christian faith or uh, you don't think they're interested, but but maybe they would just think it was fascinating, God prepares people to hear the gospel very often before they ever get an invitation. And I would like to encourage you to consider maybe bringing somebody to church during this series. Uh, this would be a great time. Here, here's another piece of this. Very often in, in uh, various Christian circles, when Genesis 1 through 3 is studied, it's studied in sort of a argumentative way where we try to argue our case for whatever view, you know, the conversations of science and faith. and uh, We're not going to do that. Uh, so I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm a pastor. 
but there is some science in this that I'll do my best to handle with care. Uh, but the whole goal, just like the goal of all of scripture, is to see Jesus in his glory. So that's where we're going with the Genesis series. So I want to encourage you, think about maybe somebody that you can invite. This would be a great time. All right, enough of an intro. Let's look at Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is our text for today. I'll read it, and then we can pray. If you are in a place, I know we're on Zoom, but if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, I would invite you to do that. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high and out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. And he says in his heart, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue or mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and the hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net, and the helpless are crushed, sink down, fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Lord, this is one of those psalms that deals with real stuff, real hardship, real pain. Lord, we don't want to whitewash this or miss this. We want to really hear what you have to say through these words. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this time to Not just hear this psalm as truths that are supposed to live in our brain only, but truths that we take into our heart, 
and that we hold on to. And Lord, above all, I pray you would help us to see Jesus and to love him and to trust him. Help us to see one another so we can love each other just as you have loved us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Psalm 10. This is kind of a heavy one. It, you know, on, as we read through it, it tells the story of the psalmist crying out to God, asking, Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's noteworthy that when it says, oh, Lord, it's the all caps Yahweh, God's personal name. And we see the tension the psalmist feels even in the first line. Oh, Lord. Oh, Yahweh. That's our God, personal covenant God. Why do you stand so far away? The God who has revealed himself, revealed himself to Moses, Yahweh, the great I am. The God of Israel feels not close to the psalmist, but far. And there's tension here. We read about the psalmist praying, pouring his heart out about wicked in the world that seems to go unpunished and unaddressed. And this is personal for the psalmist. The language is imprecatory, which means that the psalmist is crying out that God would destroy the wicked, that God would enact judgment. Sometimes things like this might be hard for us to understand. What does it mean when God tells us that the most important things we can do is to love him and love one another? How is there a place for us to cry out to God to punish somebody else? To cause somebody else to fall? Well, if any of us have ourselves or maybe known someone who has experienced real oppression in their life, Maybe experienced oppression at the hands of an abuser. Uh, If you've hurt because you've been under the thumb of somebody else, a prideful person that ignores God, then I'm willing to bet that you have felt the desire to cry out to God in an imprecatory way. And the psalmist here shows us that God can handle our deepest, most guttural, most pain-filled prayers. We find all these things in this psalm. But something else that we find in this psalm is a continuation of what we learned back in Psalm 9. If you remember from last week, we, we got real into Psalm 9 and studied it. And we learned that Psalm 9 was, first off, it was it's a it's a congregational psalm. It's not just a personal prayer. It was was written, it says, to the choir master, which meant that the psalmist wrote it specifically for uh, congregational worship, which means that it is, in one sense, a teaching psalm. We're supposed to, to not just learn what it says, but we're supposed to learn how it says it. We also learn that Psalm 9 makes an acrostic. The beginning of each line in Hebrew is the a, subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 9, we learned, was sort of this memorization tools, catechism psalm, if you will, teaching the singers 
how to do something. And that thing that it teaches how to do is how to cry out and how to pray in the midst of our pain. So we got in and we studied it and we learned that the thing that it teaches, what we're supposed to do in our pain and in our crisis, the way that we're supposed to pray is we're supposed to pray our theology. We're supposed to pray what we know to be true about God, what we believe to be true about who he is and what he does. And we pray those things. We talked about naming God when we're in pain and then praising him for that and then claiming it, taking a hold of it. That was Psalm 9. Well, if you notice, Psalm 10 doesn't have a superscript title. It just goes right into the text. And maybe if you grew up Catholic, or own a copy of a Catholic Psalter, Psalm 10 might read as something completely different for you. There's a reason for that. Psalm 9 and 10 historically have been understood to be a part one and a part two of the same psalm. They go together. In Hebrew, the Psalm 9 alphabet acrostic, it actually doesn't finish in Psalm 9. It's about halfway through and then continues in Psalm 10. So when you put the Psalms together, the acrostic is one acrostic. The Septuagint, an early Greek translation of the New Testament that was put together about 70 years before Christ, that even Jesus and his disciples would have been familiar with, the Septuagint groups these together as one psalm. And the Catholic and Orthodox Psalters, following after the Septuagint, groups these together. So if you look at uh, an ESV or an NIV Bible, something that was put together mostly by Protestants. You'll see Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, and that's what we're dealing with. But if you pick up a Catholic Bible, then Psalm 9 is much longer because it covers Psalm 9 and 10, and then Psalm 10 is what we have is Psalm 11. Here's why that's important. The message of the two Psalms is unified. And Psalm 10, just like Psalm 9, is a teaching psalm. Psalm 9 asks the question, how do we pray in times of crisis, in times of pain? And it shows us the answer is we pray our theology. Pray what you know to be true about who God is and what he does. When we get to Psalm 10, the second half, we can see that the question that the text answers begins to shift. The question then becomes, what do you do when praying your theology doesn't seem to be working? In Psalm 9, the psalmist is praying what he knows to be true about God, what he believes about who God is and what he does. And then once he gets to Psalm 10, it's like he stops and says, wait a second, this is not working like it's supposed to. Why, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, are you standing so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then he goes on to talk about the flourishing of the wicked, the mystery of why evil seems to go unpunished in the world. You know, this is important. This is incredibly important for us because Psalms like this mark the difference between uh, naive, blind religious faith and real life relationship with a living God. In naive, blind, religious faith, we don't ask questions like, God, where are you? We don't uh, ask questions like, Lord, why are you not doing the thing that you're that we thought you were supposed to do? You don't ask questions like that. But in a real life 
uh, and real life relationship with our triune living God, of course we ask questions like that. There's no question that you can't ask of God. There's nothing that you can't pour your heart out and say to him because he's real and he's living and he knows you and he loves you. So we see in Psalm 10 something really encouraging. Acknowledgement for how to pray when God, when God seems far off, when it seems like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, but also instructions, a model for how to continue to pray and continue to lay in even when it seems like none of it is working. I wonder if you yourself have ever felt like your prayers were hitting the ceiling, God wasn't listening. I know I have. The psalmist, his complaint about the wicked flourishing, about the prideful, wicked person in the world. We don't know exactly who he was talking about. He doesn't get too specific, except he says the wicked person uh, to put it shortly, is an abuser, goes after poor and vulnerable people. But other than that, it's pretty vague. I believe the reason the psalmist left it that way is so we can read this and go, I understand what he's talking about. I've come in contact with maybe a person like that hurts others or a group like that. Or I watch the news. I think about what's going on in the world. I think about the war in Ukraine. Um, I think about when we watch the news or if you follow politics, how it seems like prideful, arrogant people just act as if God doesn't exist. This psalm is for us. So let's get into it. What do you do? How do you pray when you're facing evil in the world, evil in your life, and it seems like God is not listening? It seems like none of this is working. How do you pray when God seems far off? What do you do? Well, you do what the psalmist does here. The psalmist written to show us. I want to draw out really two things that the psalmist models for us and talk about how we can do them ourselves. Here's the first one. And if you're a note taker, this is your, your big question is, uh, is when praying your theology doesn't seem to work, what do you do? And number one, here it is. Pray your doubts. Pray your doubts. Pray them. When you find yourself having doubts about whether or not God is hearing you, about whether or not your prayers are being heard, about whether or not wickedness in the world will ever go addressed by him, when you feel those doubts, pray them to God. Speak them out loud if you can. Pray them. This is the first thing the psalmist does here. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now we know learning, thinking about our theology, what the whole Bible tells us about who God is and what he does. We know that God's not far away. We know that God is imminent. He's right here. He's close. And he's everywhere. We know that God reveals himself to his people. But right here, the psalmist isn't feeling any of those things. He might know it in his brain, but in his heart, he feels alone. So what does he do? Does he go with the truth he learned in Sunday school right away and ignore his heart? No. 
He opens up the doubts that he has deep inside and he lays them out before God. He goes on in verse 5, he says, the wicked person prospers at all times. Now, is that true? Do wicked people always prosper? Do they go through life without any problems? Well, probably not. Probably wicked people are people and people go through hard times. But to the psalmist, it seems like the wicked is getting away with their crimes. It seems like the wickedness in the world just won't stop. So what does he do? He prays his doubts. He says, the wicked prosper at all times. And your, he says to God, your judgments are on high. Lord, you're way up here and out of his sight. And he says that the wicked person puffs at his foes and says, I will not be moved. See the psalmist pouring his heart out. Now, I know for many of us that grew up in church, including myself, praying our doubts, telling God what it is we're struggling to believe about him, telling God that it seems like he's not living up to his end of the deal, that feels really weird. And some of us are very hesitant to do that. You know, I wonder if anybody here has ever been told that if their prayers included any doubting, that God wouldn't hear you. Or if you if you had any doubts that your prayers aren't going to work, you have to have enough faith. The reason you didn't get healed, the reason the wicked went and flourished, the reason you didn't get that job you were praying for, the reason for all these things is because you had doubt. You didn't have enough faith. Some of us might have even been raised to believe that that's what the Bible teaches. Well, did you know that there are all kinds of things that many of us learn in and around church that the Bible says that the Bible doesn't actually say? Did you know that? One of the, one of the most famous ones is sometimes people say that the Bible says that God helps those who help himself. Well, you know what? The Bible simply doesn't say that. It's not true. In fact, it's radically untrue many times. God helps us by saving us from our sins when we're unable to help ourselves. Here's another one. Many of us have learned that the Bible says that God won't give you more than you can handle. And you know what? That's just not true. The Bible never says that. In fact, God gives us things that we can't handle all the time. You know what? If we want to get technical, that's why we die. Because there's there's a point when our bodies can't handle life anymore. God gives us things we can't handle all the time. The Bible never says that. The Bible does say that God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And he will always provide a way out. But that's not the same as God won't give you things that you can't handle. Well, another one is the one we've been talking about. Sometimes people say that if you have any doubt, God won't answer your prayers. And you know what? The Bible just doesn't say that. But there is a passage that, well, I'll read it to you. Listen to this. This comes from James chapter 1, verse 5. It says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Wonder if you've ever heard this verse quoted to say that you can't, if you pray, you better have no doubts. You better believe all the way. Well, you know what? This verse doesn't say that. This verse doesn't say that if we have doubts, God won't answer our, our prayer. What this verse does say is no doubting. That ing on the end matters. No doubting. And the one who doubts in, in a doubting way is like a wave or a sea, wave in the sea that's tossed about by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The Bible says that when we harbor doubting in our heart, we shouldn't suppose that God's going to answer. But doubting is not the same as having doubts. Do you know what the difference is? Having doubts means that doubts have come into our imagination, they show up in our heart, and they simply exist there. Doubting is something that's active. That means the doubts that exist in our brains and our hearts, we take a hold of them, we take ownership of them, and we welcome them into our lives. A great analogy is, I don't know if you've ever had a door-to-door salesman come to your door. They ring the doorbell or they knock, you open the door, they start their sales pitch. Well, what we usually do at my house is try to be respectful, but let them finish their thing and say, sorry, we're not interested, and they move on. We can't control whether or not the salesperson comes to our door, but I can control whether or not I welcome that salesperson into my house. In our house, we usually don't. We can't control whether or not doubts come into our mind or come into our hearts. We can't control what we do with them. What the Bible teaches is that effective prayer isn't prayer that clings to our doubts, that believes your doubts. Effective prayer is when you have doubts that come to the door of your brain or your heart house and then you take those doubts and you take them to the Lord in prayer and you say look this is what I have these are my doubts open it up tell God what doubts are coming to your door and don't be afraid that he'll be offended the psalmist here probably David starts right off with Lord where are you And you know why God receives that from the psalmist? Because he loves the psalmist. And he really cares what's going on in the psalmist's heart. And God loves you. And he really cares. Don't believe your doubts. Doubt your doubts. And give them to God. Be honest about them. Don't hide them. Okay, so that's the first thing. You know, I think about another Bible story. Uh, I won't read it for time, but just to mention it real quick. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story about some of Jesus' disciples that come in contact with the father and son. And the young boy, the son, is oppressed by a demonic spirit. A demonic spirit that causes the boy to be deaf and mute and have seizures, throws him into a, make him fall into a fire. And the disciples try to cast this demon out. You know, get out of the boy. They try to, and it doesn't work. Other times they were able to do it, but not this time. And so they go to Jesus. And Jesus shows up, talks to the guy, and the guy tells him what's going on with his son. Actually, let me just read this little thing that Jesus says to you. Uh, 
Jesus asks how long this has been going on with the young boy, and the guy tells him, and then the guy says, uh, hey, he says to Jesus, if you can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, <laughs> Jesus says, if you can, I love that. And then Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then he turns around, and then the guy says this, the guy says this, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus turns and casts this demon out of this boy. And the disciples, how did they do it? We couldn't do it. How did he do it? And then Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out. This kind of demon cannot be driven out but by anything but prayer. What's interesting is the only prayer that we have recorded in that passage, in that little story, is the prayer of the boy's father when he says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, sometimes we want to have powerful prayers when we're doubting. The way for your prayer to have power is not by ignoring the doubts, but by saying them to God and giving them over to him. So that's the first thing. What do we do when, we, when there's a crisis, when there's pain, when we're faced with evil in the world, when we're dealing with some kind of abuser and God doesn't seem to listen, seems like he's far? What do we do? Well, the first thing you should do in prayer is pray your doubts. Here's the second thing. And if you're taking notes, this is your number two. Pray your belief. It's simple. It's simple enough to help us remember it. Pray your beliefs. This kind of gets us back to the message of Psalm 9. What do you believe is true about God? Even in the midst of your doubt. Pray at length. What what the psalmist, probably David, is getting here is is, he's showing us how to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. And we often get those mixed up. We think we ought to believe our doubts and doubt our beliefs. No, he's doubt your doubts. And give them to God. Believe your beliefs. Look, look at look at verse 16. We see David doing this. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. And the nations perish from his land. Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Wait a second. He already said it seems like God doesn't hear. Now he says, no, I know you hear. He said, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Pray your beliefs. Even when you don't feel that, what you know up here, pray it out loud. Sometimes our hearts need to hear our mouths say what is true in our brains. Sometimes our heart needs to hear a message from our brain. Pray your beliefs. Talks about God being king, about being judge. I think my favorite line in this is in verse 14, where he says, but you do see. You know, the wicked acts like you don't see him, like you don't exist. But I know you do, Lord. I know you see it. I wonder if you've ever prayed like that. Lord, did you see what just just happened? Lord, are you... I know you know what's going on in the world. I know you see what's going on in my life. Pray those beliefs. Now there's a piece in this that's just pure gold. And it's easy to miss, but I want to show you 
Because this is where the real kicker of the psalm comes out. It's in verse 12 when he says, Arise, O Lord. It's Yahweh again. O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. So praying his doubts, praying his beliefs. Now he's calling on God. Arise, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. Now there is something really special on that phrase, lift up your hand. In the Bible, when it talks about the hand of God or the arm of God, in the Bible, when people call on or refer to God's hand or his arm, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, what they are referring to is God's power to deliver someone from bondage or a group of people, someone or a group of people from bondage and oppression. When the Bible talks about God's hand or God's arm, it's talking about God's delivering power. The classic verse where we see this is in Deuteronomy where it says, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Great terror and signs of wonders. It's repeated elsewhere in the Psalms. The mighty hand and outstretched arm of God. It's repeated in First Peter. Humble yourself, like we quote this verse a lot, under the mighty hand of God. Casting your anxieties on him. His delivering power. So when David says, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, he's saying, lift up your delivering power. Now, here's where this is really good. In Isaiah 53, the passage that we read from earlier, Isaiah starts off this, you know, it's this beautiful passage about uh, looking forward to Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who, who died for our sins, who bore our iniquities and our griefs, who was, who was carried for our sorrows and was smitten and afflicted so that by his wounds we could be healed that famous passage we read earlier. Listen to the way that Isaiah 53 starts. It says this, what we read earlier. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah starts off and he says, who believes our message? And who is the person that God's arm, his delivering power is revealed to? You see the question? Isaiah is asking a question that fits perfectly with Psalm 10. Who gets to experience God's deliverance? And to who is God revealing his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his delivering power? And then Isaiah goes on. He says this. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root on a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, esteemed not. Goes on to talk about this person bearing our griefs and our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his stripes, were healed. Isaiah is saying that the arm of the Lord, the delivering power of God, is not just an impersonal power. It's a he. 
Listen to that first verse. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him, the Lord, like a young plant. He, the arm of the Lord, is the one that grew up before God, that experienced life and immaturity and every hardship that people do that grew at one point in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He, the arm of the Lord, is the one that had no outward majesty that we would look to him or outward beauty that we would desire him, but he was a man who was despised and rejected by men. He is acquainted with grief. He was despised. He, the arm of the Lord, carries our griefs and our sorrows, and we see we see him as stricken by God and afflicted. He, the arm of the Lord, God's delivering power, is wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He, the arm of the Lord, carried the chastisement that brings people peace by his stripes were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, the arm of the Lord, the iniquity of us all. Folks, what we see here is the gospel that answers the tension in Psalm 10. How are we supposed to pray our doubts, pray our beliefs, and have assurance that God hears us when we when we can't feel his presence, when it seems like evil people are just getting away with their oppressive shenanigans? David says, arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. So, who gets to be delivered by God in the midst of seemingly unending oppression and crisis? Well, the answer is the one that looks to Jesus as God's delivering power. The one that knows the true story, takes it into their heart. The good theology, if you will. That God doesn't just leave us alone in our oppression. And in fact, he doesn't just hear us, but he fully, in, fully enters into it and experiences it. You know what the Bible does say is that we have a great high priest who has experienced our every affliction. What the Bible does say is that God will strengthen the heart of the oppressed. And he will do justice to fatherless people. And the man who is on the earth, the man who thinks he's strong, the man who says there is no God, the man who has no shame tampering his hurting of other people, that man will strike terror no more. Because the arm of the Lord was wounded our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. I love that what we read in our call to worship, and we'll close with this. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord, and he has answered me, and he has set me free. Jesus is the answer to our doubts. Jesus is the answer to our beliefs. Jesus is God's delivering power. Let's pray.